You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Da, 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 da. Hey, good morning, Triple R listeners. It's Dr. Doolittle here to welcome you to our variety... You heard it right, our variety edition of Radiotherapy. Now, when I say variety, I'm really just covering up for the fact that we have no theme. We debated all that's on offer this weekend, Halloween, the Racing Carnival, the Rugby World Cup, and we thought, damn it, oh, I shouted then, I'm sorry, people, if your ears are bleeding, none really appeal to us. So there'll be no talk of gambling, no ghosts, no scrums, no fascinators or hats, no harkers, no tricks and no treats, just good, solid radio, covering everything from codeine through hangover cures and onto the way the internet and technology is changing the way we deliver healthcare, in particular mental healthcare. Now, joining us in this here fine studio, folks, are a number of people. First up, our resident GP, Dr Capri. Now, regular listeners will know that Capri and I go back a long, long way. Capri is medicine's answer to Michelle Obama. She is glamorous, (laughs) savvy, can talk wisely on any subject, accepts no nonsense and has a hot husband. He is, (laughs) trust me. I even contemplated turning when I first met him. Also in the studio, stop giggling, Capri, is Dr. Seuss. Now, on the topic of glamour, this guy kills us all. He's tall, dark and handsome. He seems to be invited to every A-list party in town. He's studying to be a suave psychiatrist. It's a subspecialty, trust me. (laughs) And to my disgust, is way smarter than his age would have you imagine. Now, on top of all that, as if that is not enough, we also have a special guest in the studio, Dr. Marg Liddell. Marg is in to talk about a very serious and difficult topic. Her organisation is Partnerspeak. It's an online forum providing support to women whose partners have been found to be using child exploitation material, also sometimes known as child porn. Marg is going to chat about how the forum works and how they negotiate such difficult issues in an online environment. So, put away your form guide, lock out the ghouls, forget the World Cup, make yourself a cuppa. And prepare for some exercise of the brain. It's radiotherapy time. Whew, gee, that was a long intro. Oh, it's hard work. How are you, Seuss? Quite well, quite well. Spring is coming. Oh, you, you'd be, is you'd be right into this whole spring carnival business. We weren't you? talking about this. Yeah, look, we're not. But I'm just, you know, I, I don't know. Am I... Capri, you know me the best out of, out of this game. I don't know if I've just got November blues or what it is, but I just feel like the Grinch who stole Christmas, except, you know, I'm down on um, Cup Carnival. I just think it's over-commercialised, too much nonsense, too much crap. I'm down on Halloween. It's just like I'm all for American culture. I'm all for their TV. I love their movies. I watch Netflix. I'm no stranger to it. But it just seems like a, it's just a step too far. And the World Cup, well, you know what I mean? Oh, look, oh, I'm all for sport, but have I don't really you, Have you come it. off your meds? Is that the problem? It could be the problem. Maybe I need to go on something. What, what would I go on, though? Uh, vitamins? Vitamins? Minerals? Vegetables? Marg, vegetables. why don't you bring some sense into this? Some sense. I'm I'd banging go, my papers. i go into the vegetables myself. The vegetables? Um, yeah, so you're a veggie think, person? Yes, I'm... Uh, oh, well, sort of. Bit of We're north of the river now, but, um, yeah. Dr. Doolittle. So yeah. the answer to everything is kale. Kale. I don't oh, even know everything absolutely is kale. kale. I don't even know what kale is. That's oh, how that's how it's green cardboard essentially. Right. Oh, is oh, it like oh. a seaweed thing then if it's no, green it's, cardboard? It's uh, it? it's the porn Fish? well I shouldn't say the porn. It's the current trend in um in vegetarian oh, oh, diet oh. and it's like it's like oh, oh, green if we're, cardboard. If we are canning something like that then <laughs> in the heart of Brunswick, 
It's going to be it's going to be a mutiny outside. So we bolt the doors. <laughs> I've got control of the front door via this panel that I'm sitting in front of listeners. And yeah, so if you come here and you're waving, you know, I don't know, sticks Bunches and of bits of kale. Um, I don't even know what it looks like to know what it's well, being waved. Well, there are so many nicer green options, is oh. in my opinion. There Broccoli. Is, yeah. Any other What's that option? one that we always refuse to eat as kids? It's sort Brussels of like sprout. Brussels, Brussels sprouts. sprouts. I was going to say, Brussels it looks sprouts. like, you know, it looks Brussels like a sort of a green, I don't know. Let's not go there. Yeah, I know, because that's <laughs> what it looks <laughs> like. I was trying to think of a polite way of saying something that is sort of small and round and about that size. Hey, Marg. So I love kale. Do you? Absolutely. You love kale? I'm completely the opposite to Capri. I love the kale. So, and you can do lots of things with it. Creative you look like things. a good person, though, Mark. I reckon you can tell who likes kale. You just look... <laughs> I look cynical. I think it's just obvious that I like bacon and cigarettes. Um, whereas you, on the other hand, look like a good person. You look like this person... You know, cut your a kale lover. Good on I'm, you. I'm certainly a kale lover, yes. And we're going to get um, to your interview a little bit later, aren't yeah. we? Because uh-huh. that's a, a yes. very important topic and I've been looking forward to you coming on the show for some time. Right. Okay. But to start the um, show off, we always like to have a little bit of a chit-chat of stuff that's um, on our minds. And Capri, you've got a couple of things. Yeah. What are you going to hit us with first, hangover cures or codeine? Well, something that probably is a bit close, closer to your heart than kale, uh, Dr Doolittle. I'm going to start by talking about a uh, new age solution to an age-old problem. Oh, I love it when you come up with a nice I intro know. like that. It took me a long time. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the traditional uh, cures like greasy fry-ups, which you obviously don't need a hangover to, to uh, partake in, water loading before bed, the Barocca breakfast, the dubious of all of, all of them, the hair of the dog, uh, have been trumped right. by the supercharged intravenous uh, therapy which is now there are clinics popping up in New South Wales just in time for the um, end-of-year celebrations. Um, Craftily called the Hangover Clinics, which I thought... They put a lot of effort into trying yeah. to put one name. Yeah, there's been about a half a dozen guys in suits sitting around. Yeah, you know, and they, they were probably trying to plan it just prior to a big event. Look, let's make this quick, guys. What about just the hangover clinic? Yep, that'll do. Let's go to lunch. Three hours ahead. You'll be all. That's right. Anyway, the idea is that um, you can um, pay for, and it's not a cheap uh, venture, actually, you can pay for an intravenous um, uh, restorative um, therapy whereby right. you go in, uh, with your hangover, have, uh, well established, and they'll um, pop a drip in, and they will infuse you with various concoctions. All right, so a needle in the arm, uh, a bag of fluid with all sorts of whatever vitamins and yeah. minerals in it, and they pump a litre of fluid or whatever into exactly. you over what about an hour or yeah. two. Yeah, and it's customised. You can decide what what uh, what what your uh, intravenous fluids laced with. And can it- you get kale in it? Because I want <laughs> I'd want kale. Frank, frankly, I'd want kale. if there was no kale, no kale, no hangover cure for that me. That would be a slow infusion, I would imagine, but. Oh. Um, yeah, so you, vitamins, minerals, um, antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, anti-nauseants, um, antacids, and even oxygen therapy if you want to pay the extra $30. So it ranges from $140 for a 30-minute infusion to uh, uh, $200 for a 2-litre, two 2-hour two infusion with... As I say, it's customised according, according to your needs. Does that make your morning after almost more expensive than your night out? Well, this is uh, the issue is it's been brought up because the health department in New South Wales is a bit concerned that this might be encouraging um, uh, binge drinking or irresponsible drinking. But I would think that... Um, it, I can't imagine that people are going to incorporate that into their weekend entertainment costs. You know, I'm going to go out and have a big night and then tomorrow spend $200 on a, an IV infusion. I don't really think it's going to be encouraging people to drink irresponsibly any more than they would have 
in the first place. Well, not for the average drinker, at least. Yeah, maybe the businessman who needs, yeah, to be sharp the next day. I would assume that's entirely their market. They'd be looking for people who are, you know, wealthy business people, of which, you know, there's thousands going out and having a big night, um, who have got lots of stuff on the next day and are going to pop in in the morning for a quick fix-up prior to going to work. I think that, that, that would be their prime market, I would imagine. Well, it's interesting, though, because um, none of the remedies that they're... You know, obviously they've decided to include things in the past that people have thought might help with a hangover, and there's no evidence that any of them actually individually work, but, you know, obviously you get a bag full of all of them and hopefully some of them will have an effect. Even the idea of rehydration, apparently most of the hangover symptoms are due to inflammatory response. So um, whether whether this works any better than any of the other measures that people already try is, is I think I'm with, I'm with you, Capri. It just sounds like a massive placebo to me. I've been hearing hangover cures for the last 15 years on the radio and, um, you know, and I've heard so many pathological accounts of why hangovers occur. Bottom line is no one quite knows no. It seems to be shifts in hormones and inflammation and um, gastritis and uh, all sorts of stuff. And so most people have some sort of personalised approach and it's normally some sort of trial and error thing. So I always think, you know, I always think it's mind over matter. But, um, you know, the the place I keep hearing this one having come from is that it's sort of famous amongst doctors. So doctors in the good yes. old days, um, when we were young, you know, would often, if they'd had a big night, turn up the next morning and pop via, you know, the emergency department or somewhere and just quickly get a litre of fluid and maybe... An, and we'd always take an anti-nausea. I'd normally take an anti-inflammers. I'd normally take, um, you know, some sort of gastric, you know, like, um, you know, what am I after? Something like anti ulcer Nexium, one of those. Or ranitidine in yeah, those days. Those, yeah, those, ranitidine. Yeah, yeah. And we all had our own sort of technique because I remember, you know, guys would say, oh, it's midnight, everyone, take your ranitidine now <laughs> and... Also take a couple of panadine now just to get ready and then first thing in the morning you wake up, you take a couple more panadine and an anti-inflammatory, you take, you know, anti-nausea, plenty of fluid. Well, my traditional hangover cure has always been salt and vinegar chips, um, <laughs> a Gatorade these days and normally, as you say, hamburger, something greasy. Yeah. But, you know, everyone would have their own recommended thing and this is where it came yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Someone's just c- commercialised the whole endeavour and I think are very clever and as as Dr Sue says, it will be taken up probably by the more affluent mm. ne- um, people who need to be supercharged the next morning and haven't got time to... In fact, the only thing they say that actually works is rest and sleep. That that's the only thing that actually... Instead of going out. Instead of going out <laughs> the next day. No, 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 no. Well, not drinking, obviously. And pear, ju- pear juice, apparently. If you have pear juice or eat a pear, an hour before you start drinking, it reduces absorption. <laughs> so that's my... I'm going to start... Um, Producing some kind of cocktails, pear, pear, pear cocktails pear all night. Cocktail, yeah. Maybe. All night. Yes, yeah. maybe that's the next day. Uh, I'm highly dubious about the whole <laughs> process. Hey, just what do you think of you know, like I don't know the ethics. I'm just trying to think of the ethics of it. For a start, can you Medicare these people? Because obviously, if you're going to give them all these things, it's going to be a doctor in there. It's not yes. going to be a nurse. Yeah, they are or someone giving like it. registered doctors will put. And the so I'm in. assuming they're going through Medicare. Now I suppose they are sick. They've got a hangover. So strictly speaking, they can. You can't use Medicare for health-related things unless it's been pre-approved. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. for you know, so, but. For I so I spoke, but it's it's just I don't know. I just feel I'm squirming. Something doesn't feel right. Yeah, Pe- I people agree. come into emergency departments drunk all the time, and we still that's treat true. them under Medicare. Quite so rightly, that's I true. guess why not this? Even if we, yeah. it seems so jarring to our intuition. Yeah, because it's a premeditated thing. Possibly yeah. is probably what makes it a little bit uncomfortable. Three triple R. And Capri, just to keep you, you know, on awake. your toes, awake, alert, you've probably had a litre of fluid already. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Halloween <laughs> parties last night. And um, you've got another topic. You, uh, you were going to give us just a quick update on what's going on with coding. Yes. So the current fuss is regarding the decision by the TGA to reschedule the 150 codeine-containing products that you currently can get over the counter with pharmacist assistance to be prescription only by June uh, in June of next year. And um, that decision came about because there's a lot of evidence or there was an article in the MJ about the codeine, accidental codeine-related deaths between the uh, between 2000 and 2009, and uh, over-the-counter preparations were responsible for 40% of these. So um, they've decided to make this change, and obviously the AMA and the College of GPs are backing it and say it'll save lives, whereas the Pharmacy Guild are fighting it tooth and nail um, because they feel that it's uh, unlikely to change any addiction, will create more work for GPs and it will disadvantage the majority of people who use the product safely and responsibly. On the other hand, the harm minimisation group from the Pharmaceutical Society, which I didn't realise the Pharmacy Guild and the Pharmaceutical Society are very different professional bodies. I didn't even know the latter existed. Yeah, the Pharmacy Guild uh, represent the pharmacists and in their business model. Right. Whereas the <coughs> Pharmaceutical Society represents all pharmacists, wherever they work, and based on their sort of professional ethics. So I can see now why the Pharmacy Guild are not too excited about this yeah. change, whereas the Pharmaceutical Society, the Harm Minimisation Group, are in support. Um, you know what? I mean, I don't want to interrupt, but I just love the word guild. I wish I was <laughs> a part of a guild. It sort of reminds me of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for some reason. You know those munchkin... Wasn't there some song? I just want to be in a guild. I don't know what a guild, a guild is. Start your own. But I feel I need to be gilded at some stage. You know, because... I think you've been yeah, gilded. Yeah, slightly different pronunciation. Sorry, I've got off the track because I just okay. got so excited about being in a guild. That's okay. So back to you. So, yeah, the gilded of the business side um, obviously don't want it to change because they want to um, maintain um, business throughput in pharmacies. Yeah, Yet yeah. the other group, which is the more scientific side of it all, I gather. Well, a, a small part of that group. I think overall the Pharmaceutical Society also have reasons to... to um, that disagree with this change, but the, that particular group who are into harm minimisation support the change. So what are the concerns? Yep. Um, first of all, because codeine is highly addictive, there's a potential for accidental addicts. So people who have no history of... Um, of, of abuse who become hooked on the codeine because it's so highly addictive because they overuse it unintentionally, keep using it for too long a period yep. or in, keep increasing the dose. So you're creating these um, this group which are at risk for these codeine-related deaths, yep. accidental deaths. And uh, in, the number of people treated with codeine addiction has tripled in the last decade from 300 to 1,000 or something like that. The second problem uh, just is... Just before you go on, how much of that is over the counter, though? Because 40%. all the strong... The deaths, but all those big codeine addicts I know get it off doctors and they do doctor shopping because yeah. you know the over the counter presentations only have eight to fifteen milligrams, whereas they can it's get heaps more. No, you know, but they they take a hundred a day. They yeah. go they? they go shopping around the pharmacists, yeah. and that's one of the. I mean, I was going to get to that later, but Sorry, while yeah, we're talking we're about shopping. it, I mean that is one of the solutions is to have this real time reporting. You know, if someone goes to a pharmacist and get gets twenty panadine, and then goes to another pharmacist down the road in half an hour and gets another twenty, that's 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 obviously an issue. Well, they can buy them in supermarkets too, where there's yeah. no uh, capacity That's to right. report. And I'm not denying, obviously 60% of these deaths are not over the counter. Actually, I'm just thinking, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen codeine in a supermarket. I've seen Panadol. Is Panadine in a supermarket? It used to be, it's not now. Right. You have to get okay. it 
over the counter yeah. with pharmacy uh, assistance. Anyway, the other problem is that it's a really it's not a very good analgesic. Particularly no. in the in the sub in the doses that are in these over the counter preparations. This is what I've been hearing a lot of from yeah. the um, drug and alcohol people for the last five years. They've been saying increasing evidence that a large number of people get no benefit from codeine and it's wasted in That's their tablets. That's right. Mm. And there are some groups who say that it should you should just stop making the uh, um, the doses that are under sixty milligrams because they've got there's no there's not a lot of evidence that it actually is a good analgesic. So you've got this poor analgesic that's coupled with other painkillers like paracetamol and non-steroidals or anti-inflammatories which if they're overused and patients don't realize you know by taking Mm. more and more of the codeine but those paired products they're actually going to get the um, side effects and the toxic sometimes toxic and life-threatening when it comes to paracetamol um, side effects of taking too much of the other agent that they're not aware um, Mm. that they're doing so that's that's Uh. another issue and then finally um uh, that there are better, it, there's, there's better ways of managing pain, and that codeine isn't part of the equation. Um, certainly not out in in the public forum, and so that this idea that that doctors might um, have an extra burden, I think that that's the place for pain management if it's over and beyond what is just simple pain relief that Panadol and ibuprofen or something should be able to manage in the community and anything that's more ongoing or more severe than that should actually be seen by you know a medical practitioner. And, I, and also, I don't tend to prescribe codeine products in general. I try and tailor pain relief to what the type of pain is and we have lots of different um, uh, options now particularly for new, you know neurological pain or even physical measures to deal with with certain pain um, problems so I think that um, overall the benefit for the community is is to take them uh, back to prescription only because they're not a very good analgesic and we have far safer options I hear what you're saying sister yeah um, so in <laughs> essence what <laughs> you're saying is it's a stuff. really crappy Analgesia, analgesic probably anyway. Yes. It probably doesn't work in the doses that are buying over mm-hmm. the counter. The risks of over the counter are high. Exactly. Um, they should do one of two things, either just stop selling the codeine or make it doctor only and then doctors will basically stop prescribing it because we know it doesn't work. And just one sobering statistic. I like these little I love, statistics. I love sobering yeah, things. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you do not. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, no, I've been co- called out on radio. <laughs> codeine is, is um, not available over the counter in the US. Most of Europe India, Hong Kong, Japan, where in Australia we sell 1.3 million packets per month. Which is is interesting considering the rest of our drug policy is completely swayed in the other direction. Yes. Um, So, you know, that... How do you mean? Just just, um, expand on that The rest of our drug policy is so far behind in terms of kind of the progression that the rest of the world has made in terms of decriminalisation and legalisation, whereas with things like prescription drugs, for example, in this case... Where we've allowed that to be so much more easily accessible. Yeah, but so in some ways we are behind the rest of them too when they've all taken it yeah. off. Mm, yeah. yeah. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with Dr Capri, with Dr Seuss, with myself, Dr Doolittle, and our special guest, Dr Marg Liddell. Marg is a criminologist from the Justice and Legal Studies Program at RMIT University. Um, she has worked as a, in case, case management of child protection and also in youth justice and adult correction, as well as in policy and management positions. Marg's on the board of management of Partnerspeak, and she joins us today to talk about the work 
of um, Partner Speak, which is essentially an online peer support forum for people of affected partners concerned about child exploitation material viewed by their spouses or family members. I cut and paste that. Did I get it right, Mark? (laughs) As I was reading it, I thought, I'm not sure if this is making sense. Uh, Yes. (laughs) But um, that doesn't matter because we've got you in the studio to tell us everything. So why don't you get the ball rolling by telling us what, what Partner Speak is? Well, Partner Speaks an online uh, peer-to-peer um, support uh, forum for people who, uh, or people affected partners, I suppose you'd say, concerned about child exploitation material or child abuse material. Um, that material being viewed by their partners, spouses, or family members. Mm. So, um, so in essence, anyone can use your forum. It, yes, been that's n- right. Almost exclusively women, though, I'm imagining. Um, no, um, no. I think there's a, an increasing um, uh, use of that forum, or there will be, I think, over time. And there is, we're seeing a little bit of that now by um, people, you know, by uh, gay people, um, by men. Yep. Um, mm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, how long have you been around? How long's Partner Speak been around? Um, uh, it was launched in April 2000. And Thirteen. Right. I oh, say so you're yes. relatively new. Yeah, who, who very, funds very you new. Very who funds new. you? Um, uh, it's a volunteer organisation. Oh, so it's been set up by a very impressive um, woman who was an affected partner, and uh, she couldn't find any material uh, to support that would provide support for her in the challenges that she faced, and uh, so she started this um, organisation. So it's an online forum, as uh, Dr. Jewell said. How does that work? Well, what what happens is it, it's quite a, a very easily accessible um, uh, website, and uh, people can just go to partnerspeak.org.au, and instantly a whole lot of uh, flags come up. So it talks about um, how you can uh, log in to uh, talk to a person, an affected partner themselves, mm. about your experience. So it's peer-to-peer, meaning that it will be somebody else that has been affected by the same sort of mm. um, problem that you're actually going to be talking to via an online um, process. Uh, it isn't always um, instant, so you might log in and you might... Um, uh, sort of put some information up, but it's not managed uh, 24 hours mm. or you know f- every day. But people, th- the person will come in then and talk about their experience or talk about or respond to your problems. It's, it's not a counselling service. That's a really important thing to say um, because that would be inappropriate to offer counselling in that si- system in that situation but what it does do is is um link to a whole lot of counseling and other support services yeah I, so i've had a look at it mm-hmm. so you know the online forum it's fascinating so there's a whole lot of information but mm. the online forum obviously has everyone's stories up there so people log in yes. and they put in their stories so yes. there's a lot of really you know tragic stories you know yes. so, and they're de-identified but it's they something are. like oh hi i'm you know 35 years old i got married two years ago and found my husband was looking at child pornography mm-hmm. i was initially suspicious then i confronted him then this happened then that happened then the police raided us i feel devastated and then someone comes on and writes some sort of answer and advice and it often has links and ideas and thoughts and some sort of understanding there's a number of accounts where people say things like you know i feel suicidal i feel you know i want to end my life this is so horrible and um and you know all the stuff that i read the answers were all incredibly sensible obviously and i gather it has the capacity to sort of take people 
non-public as well. So yes, you can right. talk person yes, to person right. without it all being yes, public. That's right. But it's yeah. always typing. When I say talk, it's yes. Um, yes, computer. It it's no, yes. it's no. Actually, no one's on the phone. No, no one's no talking. One's on I Skype. That's anything right. like that. No. If counselling is needed, it's referred on. The, the fact that it's public though makes it one really revealing, but also yes. really powerful. Yes, because mm. it brings that conversation out out of the shadows, which I guess it's what it's trying to do. That's exactly what it's trying to do. Because uh, one of the the really important issues here is lack of awareness of, of this particular problem. I would imagine too that you would get. You know, I've talked about these sorts of topics many times on the radio over the years, and you often get some angry responses for people saying things like, um, and I'm not, um, of course, supporting these responses no. at all, but I'm really raising it to ask how you deal with it. And by angry, I mean people saying, you know, these people are all part of the problem. They shouldn't be helped. They should all be thrown in jail. That sort of, you know, response. Do you get that or am I, is it my imagination? Um, I th- no, I, I don't think that's your imagination at all. I, but I think that there's... Um, a lot of views out there about about this particular issue and mm. it's quite complex uh, it's not quite you know sort of simple to say um this person shouldn't be helped because they've done some you know they've been accessing this kind of material the criminal justice system of course is on about um punishing people but it's also on about rehabilitation i think that one of the problems of course is that that, that there isn't sufficient research around about how to manage that as a process well that's actually an excellent segue to my next question Yep. which is one of the reasons we wanted you to come in at this particular point is you published some research recently That's right. about trying to understand the women's experiences of being partners of people who've used child yes, exploitation right. material. Tell us a little bit about your research. Um, well, the research is um, was commissioned by Partner Speak um, and uh, we interviewed... It was a pilot study, so mm-hmm. quite small, um, nine women... Uh, most from Victoria, but others from uh, Western Australia and uh, Northern Territory. And um, the people's uh, ages range from uh, early 20s to mid-60s. Um, the majority actually were younger women, which were, I suppose was a bit of a surprise um, uh, when we first uh, became involved. The research, I think, once again, is very controversial uh, because it tells the stories from the affected partners' position and those are very traumatic stories. And one of the things that uh, struck us in writing up the research and one of the the issues is... is, um, doing interviews with people but then trying to capture people's views um, in a sensitive and appropriate way. Uh, But one of the things that struck us was that um, all of these people were significantly traumatised by a range of factors, not just the um, finding, either detecting or the police coming um, and, you know, knocking on the door or in some instances being quite aggressive about coming into the house. It wasn't just about that. It was just that they felt that all all the way along the line after that, there were factors that actually re-traumatised them. So many of these women, you know, four or five years on, in my view, are still suffering significantly from um, the events that have uh, taken place That's over what, their that, lives. That was what struck me reading the research too was just a huge variability in response and experiences mm. there were so many things that could go wrong if you're in That's this situation right. of being That's a partner right. you know not only the initial phase of finding it out and what does that mean about myself my sexuality what does it mean about my partner yes what does it mean about my relationship is my relationship a fraud then going on to the whole um 
criminal justice process mm. and you know mm. what and being feeling like they were being victimized as yes, well feeling like they were a part of the crime yep. and then of course you know their friends and family finding mm. out and what does that mean mm. it's just mm. oh it was just mind-boggling it just was so sad reading about it and and that's the thing i think that we found was that they were just re-traumatized by you know so many different aspects um of their lives and you've just uh, you've just referred to a whole lot of them do yeah. we know much about um, men who use um, child exploitation material? Sort of, I imagine, you know, when I think of it, I imagine, a, to be honest, I've never read about it. And I'm just thinking, you know, so I'm speaking off the top of my head, but I've always imagined, you know, sort of a single middle-aged guy lacking social skills, mm. you know, a sort of, you know, I, I, I didn't sort of think of a person in a relationship, I guess. I've got to I've, and obviously I'm totally wrong, and you know, but do we know much about the demographics or the... We know a little. We know a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, what I know, I suppose, is very much from from this research, because I suppose, like you, you you hear about this otherwise in the media. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing here was that um, eight of these nine women were married and um, had children. Most had children. Mm-hmm. Um, some small children. Uh, the older women, of course, had children who had, who had left home. But um, the men were from fairly. Um, well, I suppose, I, it's hard to put it into sort of class, but but they were men who had f- important jobs in most instances. Mm-hmm. So they seemed to have good, um, solid connections, social connections. What I think is really interesting about the men and the profile of the men is that most of them behaved... Uh, in a sort of a secretive manner. Mm. So they would um, spend a fair bit of time up in their studies or they would have a man cave or they would, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of access this material at work or in Mm. their home office where nobody was allowed to be. Mm. So that, um, I think that's the thing that the research, wider research talks about is that this is quite a secretive um, type um, offence and the other thing about it was that in most instances they blamed somebody else for it Right. So that was the thing that, that came across in the research. They blamed other people. Isn't that a crime Sometimes thing in they... general? Every criminal, yeah. I've seen many criminals through my practice in the years and I've never heard one that came in and said, it's a fair cop, it's all down to me. <laughs> it was always, you know, it's always someone drove if, me to if this. A, if a lot of this, though, comes down to that whole like begets like uh, approach yes. and perhaps mm-hmm. abuse begets further abuse approach. And then, I mean, this is, a I guess, a controversial point, but uh, no one wants to be attract, attracted to something that is going to be deemed socially unacceptable. Mm. And I guess there's a a difference between ideation and intent. Mm. The fact that you're attracted to that material is one thing. Going out and accessing it or supporting the industry is is quite a different thing. Mm. Um, I do do wonder about the people who are are embroiled in the situation as well. Uh, to, To some extent, perhaps, they didn't want to be embroiled in it? Oh, I think that's true. I, I think that um, uh, there were a couple of instances where the men said uh, that this is now going to stop for me. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is pretty powerful in itself. Mm-hmm. They needed somebody to intervene to actually stop uh, because they couldn't stop. So it becomes a bit addictive, I think. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, uh, some of the women said was that they felt that <clears throat> in the material that they found... Um, or when the police were talking about it um, with them, that the uh, the offences started out at a particular level and they got 
the, the person started to watch more and more severe images, more images of violent um, sexual assault of children, torture of children, those sorts of things. So, and the that that comes back to you know toddlers, babies, toddlers. Is, is that perhaps why you mentioned in your article in the conversation that it, uh, that the term child pornography is perhaps misleading or not not accurate? And we use the term child exploitation material here. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Perhaps? Well, um, I think one of the problems about using the word pornography is that it makes people think that it's a bit like adult pornography, and it isn't anything like adult pro- pornography. I think in saying that, you have to say that not all, um, uh, even adult pornography is consensual. But if you look at the uh, the images of uh, child abuse and child exploitation, and you think about it, it you can't help but notice or think about the fact that these are children who have been severely uh, sexually abused mm-hmm. and um, when you look at babies and you look at um, toddlers and you look at prepubescent type you know children not type children and adolescents um, this is just terrible it's really quite a terrible uh, thing that happens to these children so I suppose from my point of view the we need to change. We need to move our mindset away yeah. from the word pornography um, to really calling it what it is, mm. which is child exploitation material, or we prefer the term child abuse material, mm. because child abuse material encapsulates all of those um, those areas. And then I think people start to think about the fact that this is about contact abuse. This isn't just about watching something on the internet. It's not just about viewing something. These children were abused, severely abused for this material to be available to people. And by watching yeah, and by watching it you were watching a crime yes. and by watching it That's you were right. supporting the financial um, elements of that crime absolutely which yeah. is which is obviously you know different to other forms of pornography that's right and one of the other oh, not, problems uh, about pornography about, sorry yeah. I shouldn't say other forms no. because I've got to get my terminology <laughs> right yeah. but one yeah. of the other problems about all of that is that it then actually increases the demand yes yeah. and that's that's really serious mm. um, and as as uh, GPs and um, in, in your line of work that is is really, really important. We, we want to see that stop. Yeah. Um, and I guess that um, the use of the word pornography perhaps makes people think it, it's just, it's not a contact um, uh, offence. It's just, it, he was just looking. It externalises so the harm, you know, yeah. And it really minimises. And I think that's what our, our participants in this research felt, that so many people, um, friends, family, even GPs, um, said, oh, well, you know, he was only looking. It mm. isn't a, a, a serious, it, it isn't really serious. Mm. It is extremely serious. Yeah. Mark, can yeah. I ask you then, when you're supporting people in the online forum, how do you, I'm trying to think this question through, but how do you distinguish your role in supporting someone versus your role in fighting child exploitation by encouraging them to report to police? Because I would imagine that is one of the first incredibly difficult issues yes. someone goes through. Do I report my partner who might be the parents of my children who might end up in jail and explode our life? Yeah, that's right. Look, that's, that's a, a difficult one, but there is no doubt um, that uh, by not reporting it, um, uh, uh, the, the affected partner is in some trouble as well now right. because the legislation changed in 2014 uh, to indicate that um, uh, if you are aware of um, 
uh, child abuse material being used, you have a responsibility. Even for the general public, not just for clinicians, Yes, no, that's right. No, no, it it doesn't distinguish. Yep. Um, The other thing I think about it is that... um, that's important to say is that partners speak believe that it's actually ethical, an ethical obligation, or they have an ethical obligation to advise the person that's on the forum that they really do need to um, notify the police. And they also have a range of uh, ways of doing that, um, suggest perhaps somebody else helps um, the person with that. Um, but but once again, of course, the person has to be sure that that's actually happening. It can't be just, you know, I have a feeling mm. about mm. it. Mm. So Partner Speak has a, a, a view that this needs to be reported. And unless we actually uh, have that view, um, this, this won't stop. Yeah. Um, but in saying that, there's a lot of support uh, for people because people have to do that in their own time too. Yeah. And when they're able. So it's not a matter of... Um, and they have to own the issue to be able to go and report this. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex area and it's really... Because it's, a, a, um, it's an anonymous forum, people then have... They can get this advice, but then they have to make up their own mind I think about that's, what um, they do. Marg, the work you're doing is fantastic. It's great to know that there's forums like this available. Everyone, you've been listening to Dr Marg Liddell, who's um, from the Justice and Legal Studies Program at RMIT University and is on the Board of Management of Partnerspeak. And you should all check that website out. It's partnerspeak.org.au. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, um, Seuss, my old mate, my old hello. buddy. Hello, hello. You're going to tell us a little bit about how the world of technology is mm-hmm. changing the practice of mental health. Yeah, I figured as the, as the young one in the crew... I should be the one to talk to you yeah, about Robin. technology. Yeah, <laughs> Educated you a little on, yeah. on, uh, on the, what the hip crew now are all up, up, in, up in arms about. What is this internet thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, you have a telephone that you can carry around in your hand? Yeah, and it's not a brick. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you plug but, it in? But more than just a telephone, the technology has pervaded, apart from all our lives completely, it's also pervaded healthcare and all, our, all our, our, the way we monitor our well-being. Things like Fitbits... Have you heard of Fitbits, Jawbones, those yep. little yep. things, that, pedometers that people wear? Um, that's everywhere. Things you stick to yourself that count your yeah. steps and whatnot. S- sleep yep. apps. People use these sleep yep. apps on their phone to, to, to regulate their sleep pattern and see mm-hmm. when it's ideal for them to wake up. Um, but more than just physical health, now that's starting to get into um, mental health as well, which is a slightly less intuitive concept because it's something that's not seen to be so easily monitored. Um, the The... The approach that's been that's been taken um, in a lot of well, in a lot of these in what's what's happening now yep. is that big companies like Google, Apple, IBM um, are pouring huge amounts of money into into research into uh, into mental health research. Mm-hmm. So where, whereas in the past pharmaceutical companies have been uh, putting a lot of the funding into it, Google, for example, has just opened uh, their Google Life Sciences branch, which they're pouring enormous amounts of money into. They've just recruited Tom Insell, who's the director of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health uh, in America, effectively a top mental health doctor in, in the United States, uh, recruited him or poached him um, to head their um, psychological unit. Um, and some of, the, some of the things that they're doing, so 
Um, I'll start off with what IBM is doing. IBM's just done a, a study with Columbia University yep. looking into um, kind of semantic coherence and voice complexity in um, high-risk uh, children who are at high risk of developing psychosis and using that study to try and predict their chance of then developing psychosis a bit later in life. Say that um, slowly. Semantic what? Semantic, semantic coherence. <laughs> semantic coherence. In other words, the way they construct sentences, speak and everything and, yeah, and, and what that complexity. says about their mental health and whether... And they're writing programs to pick up um, um, errors in semantic coherence. Exactly. And, wow. and, and the ability for that to predict future psychosis. It's a very small study. Um, I think about 34 participants. Um, but at, based on that study, they had a 100% success rate yep. in terms of prediction, which is, which is interesting. But that's, but that's just, well, I guess that's technology being used uh, in ways that we've, we've used technology in those ways before. But when we're talking about live monitoring or self-monitoring, um, there's a company called Ginger.io. It's in, out of San Francisco. And what that does now is they've created a Facebook app which monitors um, things like your social interaction, um, anything from the number of calls you make, the text messages you send out, how much of that you're using in a month, and using that to, to actually use, well, using that as a predictor of your affective states, for example, so your mood states. So people that are poor are depressed who start to engage less socially or start to withdraw mm. into themselves, um, these apps are able to pick up on that. Uh, which just seems like such, you know, it, it's such an obvious... Um, application for these apps and mm-hmm. it's su- such a sensible thing because essentially when you go and see um, mm. a shrink of any sort of any variety and they're trying to assess your mood state we, we base it on basically two things what you tell us mm-hmm. and what we observe and what we observe is your rate of language your body movement all these things but so much of it is based around the way you speak the sorts of things you speak about and your behavior if you tell me i'm up all night talking to my friends i'm thinking to myself Mania. Yeah. Um, that's just one of the thoughts that go it's through a, my it's, mind. It's, it's all not definitive. So, if you've got something like an app that picks up that you're all of a sudden um, you're putting up nine posts every night, whereas two months ago you weren't putting up yeah. any, then that's fantastic. Of course, you know you'd want these things to be. Um, ethical in that, you yes. know, I'd, I'd want to buy that app if I had, say, um, a mental illness to monitor me. I don't want it to monitor me without my permission, but if I've bought that app and I've given it permission to monitor me and to, uh, you know, have some sort of alert system set up, then I don't see the problem with it. Um, my concern is the worried well, um, mm-hmm. which I see a lot of, where they'll get these apps and start monitoring every aspect of their speech, behaviour, you know, and and come and pathologise perhaps what is actually not, you know... Yeah, this is very much this is very much one of my concerns. Any attempt to, uh, I guess, quantify a qualitative phenomenon mm. um, can raise, raises issues uh, because it's, you're not necessarily getting the, the 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 accurate kind of phenomenological representation of what they're actually feeling. You're just trying to reduce everything down to a binary equation of, of numbers. Mm. Um, but at the same time, as opposed to getting a snapshot uh, idea when you go to a doctor. For example, this is able to track it over time. Uh, even closer to home uh, at the Alfred Hospital, um, Paul Fitzgerald and his team um, they did the study, a year-long study last year. The results aren't out yet, called the Facebook into Affective Disorders Study. Um, essentially, they had volunteers sign up with, um, with um, mood disorders, depression or bipolar affective disorder, and monitored their Facebook posts over a year and tried to track that to any relapses that they may, might have. Um, and trying to, so the, the idea being that they could develop an app that could just monitor your just 
solely off your Facebook posts and try and predict early signs of a relapse. Yeah, I went to the launch of this. I'm trying to remember. It was over a year ago, so again, I'm um, testing my memory. But I vaguely remember, too, they had it set up whereby... So you, you know, volunteer for this program, and you set it up so that if you reach certain trigger points, mm. then the app sends you essentially a message, an email, and also the support person that you yep. nominate, an email saying, um, check in, go and see your doctor. Um, and the support person gets it as well. So they can, you know, go over and say, hey, Sue, son, you know, I've got the message. You've obviously reached some trigger. We better go and see the doctor yeah. together. Which, or which or makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Yeah, um, but the going back to Google, the Google approach is kind of an all-consuming model. So in the way that because it's such a large organization and has, such, has infiltrated so many different areas of our life, um, it could potentially, if you've got a Google phone, let's say, you can monitor your phone conversations, your text messages, your Facebook, your emails, all aspects of your virtual world mm. and kind of construct, with the amount of data that it extracts from there, kind of construct a real-time image of what you're like based on these 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 correlates, which makes a lot of sense to me in terms of, of monitoring. I can see the potential. At the same time, Start that's a scam very Orwellian. Isn't it very Orwellian? This Orwellian idea. Well, we've, already, we've already got a Mental Health Act, and, you know, mm. and as you probably know, I'm not the greatest fan in the world of Mental Health Acts. I think they could be done better. But anyway, and I don't love Prefer them. But um, I, yeah, guilt. <laughs> um, but you know, I'd be a little bit scared that um, with all of the ability to monitor us now, that you know, metadata, our apps, our phone, our yeah. Facebook, our internet usage, our browser history, someone could. Um, develop an idea of what I'm going through and decide that on the basis, just like a mental health act, on the basis of my behaviour, someone's going to come around without me having asked anyone, without my friends and Now look, I know this is, I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist. And the internet is full of conspiracy fraudsters like you. Yeah, Uh, it sort of scares me that there's this um, you know, uh, we just have to have such good laws in place about privacy and autonomy, which I don't believe we currently do. I hate all this new data monitoring nonsense. The idea is that all of this currently is voluntary. It yeah. has to be off your own volition. Yeah, and I'm all for that. Where, where, where does that go? Is they, are we going to reach a point in time where um, that changes? Yeah. As it is, all this data is being collected. The only real yes. difference now is that it's being the, the yeah. idea is that it can be analysed to some sort of constructive use. Yeah, history is full of well-meaning people who inter, who interfere in other people's lives out of good intentions that mm. turn out to be crappy ideas. Yeah. And it's also full of people who interfere in other people's lives to abuse power and for financial or political gain. And, you know... <laughs> Until those people disappear from the face of the earth, then I just worry about this sort of stuff. Yeah. I think the biggest issue about this is the kind of support mechanisms that might be in place for people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, because once you collect all of that and you start to look at it, it could be um, something that just uh, really stresses you, re-traumatises you, makes you think... Um, oh dear, you know, I've got a really massive problem here. You might have and you might not have. So I think then some kind of support structure. I, I like the idea much more of the Alfred Hospital research, I must say, and what they're planning to do because there is somebody there that can then come in and um, and sort of say, perhaps we need to go and see somebody or perhaps we just need to have a chat. Mm. Well, it's getting the balance right between the power of these absolutely incredible technologies have to enhance our lives versus the risk that they have of um, damaging our lives. Yes. Any further comments? Because we're going to have to finish up. It's getting close to the hour. What do you reckon, Seuss? Are you for it? Are you against it? Uh, I'm for it. (laughs) I love a binary conclusion. (laughs) I'm for it. Uh, I, I've never been one of the internet conspiracy theorists. Uh, if Google's reading my email, that's fine. I don't have time to read my email. If someone else wants to do it for me, that's well and good. There's nothing interesting there. But um, I can see why people get particularly concerned. So watch the space. 
Yeah, yeah it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it's a big space too. Yes, it is a big space. Oh, goodness, we're almost done. We've only got a minute or so left. What do you reckon, Capri? Uh, Are you uh, using all these technologies yourself in your no, general practice I'm yet? I'm really, I'm quite um, backward in all these. And coming forward. Well, not, not usually that, but backward with lots of these new technologies. I'm just catching up with Facebook. Right. And now the kids don't use it anyway, so you that was the reason on. I wanted to get onto it, is to watch what they were doing. Hey, um, <laughs> Marg Liddell from the, oh, lost my bit of paper, criminologist from RMIT University yes, and Partner Speak. Everyone have a look at that website. As I said, partnerspeak.org.au. Thanks so much for coming in and sharing Great. what Thanks is such a much. tough topic. Um, you know, hats off to the work you and um, the whole team at Partner Speak do. It's great to have yeah. organisations like you. Um, Seuss, what do you got planned for, you know, you're a young social one, you know, what is it, Cup Day? Do you put on a fascinator or is I get confused? No, I, 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 <laughs> no I'm joking. I, I'd like to I know fascinators are for the ladies <laughs> and hats are for the gentlemen like yes, yourself. Yes. Yes. Will you be going to the Cup? I am going to the Cup. I'm quite excited. I just hope it doesn't rain again. Oh, goodness. And me, myself, I shall be sitting at home watching TV, probably not watching the Cup. I don't know, probably preparing for an, an another radiotherapy at some stage because I've got nothing better to do. Hey, thanks, game team. It's time for the scientists at Einstein and GoGo to take over the airways um, and entertain and educate us simultaneously. 102.7, a triple R. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.